This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. We developed lean shoulders, big calves. The only time we looked up or moved was to collect more work. Everyone watched the clock. How quickly we worked was the only bit of control we had. Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. I'll be sitting in for John O'Brien. In this episode... As a teen, Chinese-American author Anna Chu was forced by her mother to work in their family's garment factory in Queens, New York. When at home, she was also the family's maid and faced punishment for doing things like schoolwork. Chu then contacted Child Protection Services on her mother, but due to bureaucratic bumblings, those circumstances left her to fend for herself. Now, as an adult, Chu reckons with life, family, and not-so-easy answers to past trauma. In this talk, presented by Elliott Bay Book Company, Chu unravels the traditional immigration tale and transgenerational trauma in her debut memoir, Made in China, a memoir of love and labor. Chu was also joined in conversation with fellow author Melissa Phoebos. Together, they discuss how Chu was able to write her memoir in such a way that not only humanizes the traditional villain, but highlights the plight of immigrants and their hopes for the American dream. Melissa Phoebos is the author of Whip Smart, Abandon Me, and Girlhood. Anna Chu writes personal essays on identity and growing up in New York as an immigrant. Her work has appeared in Poets and Writers, Lit Hub, Three Penny, and Jezebel, among others. She holds an MFA in creative nonfiction from Sarah Lawrence College. This virtual talk was presented by Elliott Bay Book Company on August 5th. Please note, this recording does contain unedited language of an adult nature. Um. Hi, Anna. Hello, Melissa. <laughs> will you read to us you. your amazing book? And then I will shower you with love and compliments and then questions. That sounds fantastic. Um, I'm actually going to read from the intro. So here we go. The seven train flooded with natural light as we emerged from underground and Long Island City's graffitied rooftop pre-war buildings and brick warehouses come into view. The commute from school to my parents' garment factory in Queens was a 25-minute bus ride, a transfer, and then another 35 minutes on the subway. After stepping off the packed train, I walked down a sidewalk lined with abandoned warehouses, their windows cloudy, cracked, and boarded up with pieces of plywood. Unmarked trucks and vans passed once in a while. Three long blocks from the station, a large commercial dumpster sat in front of a pair of dark green doors. No one went in or out, and there was no way to see inside. But I knew the place. I worked here every day after school and on weekends. It was my latest punishment. I used my body as leverage to pull up on the metal door. Immediately, even before I was fully in, a gust of stale air lifted the hair off my shoulder and neck and whipped it around my face. Goosebumps ran along my arm and the back of my neck. The door slammed shut behind me with a mechanic thud. The calm outside disappeared and the sound of a working factory took over. A few tall windows fought in natural light while the rest of the warehouse lay in shadow. 
The sewing machine section, the only area with any direct lighting, was busy with women wearing disposable masks over their mouths and forearm coverings. The mask protected against the debris and pollutants in the air, and oversized oversleeves protected their arms from the heat of the lamps. From where I stood, I could see two rows of sewing tables, each slightly larger than a school desk, illuminated by individual lamps. Lighting was key to speed and safety here. As the women leaned on the pedal at their feet, their bodies lurched forward in a soft concave, meeting the rhythm of rapid stitches at their fingers. Two shades of maroon thread turned at their spool pin. Once in a while, a hand shot out, tugged on a thread, and unspooled the spindle. I rarely saw faces, only the tops of their backs, circular spotlights exposing the whiteness of their necks. The only memory I had of the factory before becoming a worker was on Chinese New Year, the, the one day of the year my parents closed shop. My mother, half-siblings, Henry and Jill, and I came early in the morning to stuff gift bags. We formed an assembly line. I was at the head, a reluctant Henry stood next to me to follow, followed by Jill and then my mother. She sat licking the tip of her index finger, peeling crisp 20s and sealing them in red envelopes. It was hard to keep Henry working for more than a few minutes at a time, but Jill, a year younger than him, loved chores and tasks. She tossed a handful of red candy into each plastic bag, one eye always on our mother, seeking assurance and approval. I remember the warehouse feeling cavernous, cold, and quiet. Our voices carried over the entire space. The vast size made us giddy, nervous. I remember running from the echoes that lurked in the shadows like waiting ghosts. We raced back to our mother and back to complete our task. A running factory filled with workers was worlds apart from the deserted warehouse where we played Chinese Santa Claus. But from the number of gift bags we put together, I knew that there were about 50 employees. There was no way to count the people in the factory now, tucked behind and around the machines, moving from one station to another. The enormity of the warehouse intimidated me still. A long thread landed in the corner of my mouth and I wiped my face with the back of my sleeve. Industrial metal fans strategically placed around the warehouse circulated flat, hot air. The constant turbulence was meant to provide relief, but instead it annoyed and unsettled. Trash, loose thread, plastic, lint, and pieces of fabric migrated from the nearby surfaces, crevices, and floors, revolving in the air until they caught on something or someone. I looked over to the office where my mother was most likely doing inventory, planning new projects, or handling payroll. Then I headed in the opposite direction. I passed an old dank fridge next to a small island with an off-white microwave and a commercial-sized rice cooker that could feed all the workers. Past the kitchen was a women's restroom. A light bulb flickered on and off and then on again. The smell of ammonia mingled with rice and leftovers hit me as I passed by. To my left, I paused as an old Chinese man shouted urgently to a younger man, his voice drowned out by the hiss of the steam press they operated. It was a father and son, or an uncle and nephew. 
I wasn't sure which, but they were close enough to my station that I was familiar with their routine. They operated a commercial steamer with an extended hose on a tall rack for garments. Steam rose out of a wide head or out of a large iron resting on the oversized board. Their station was one of the reasons the factory was hotter and more humid than it was outside. The father manned the machine, the more dangerous job, while the son ran inventory, pulling clothes off the steam, steamer hook or iron press, and then quickly folding and packing them in boxes or clear garment bags. Their speed and intimacy made it look easy, but they were both drenched in sweat. Up close, they looked older than I thought. The older man could have been in his 50s. He lifted a lever and quickly moved out of the way. Steam rose in a white cloud above them and was swiftly picked up by the fans, leaving a metallic humidity in the air. The smell reminded me of the first day we turned the heat on in the winter. The sun swooped in and lifted the shirt off the press. Each piece was newly starched and pressed before they left the factory. He worked hastily, turning to lift the next shirt off. A short weathered Chinese man hurried by, dumping black trash bags of fabric and thread a few feet from where I stood. It was Mr. Wang, my mother's eyes and ears. I pulled another loose thread from my mouth and picked up my pace. Hip hop music was coming from my station as I approached. Six women stood around a long wood table, each holding a bundle of fabric in their hands. The cutting girls, as I like to call them, shifted and made room for me. I dropped my Jansport book bag on the concrete floor and felt something wrap around my ankle. We stood close to two fans and they often blew fabric thread and pieces of paper off the table onto us. Without glancing down, I used my free leg to kick whatever was off. One of the younger women, the gesture in the group, was swaying from side to side and humming. She always drew smiles and laughter from the other women. Once in a while, she'd hear a song that got her dancing. Her energy was so contagious she could get the whole team moving to the same rhythm. I gave her a quick smile and pulled my hair from my face and up in a ponytail in preparation for my work. My job was to cut loose thread off half-completed or finished articles of clothing. An unfamiliar mountain of maroon fabric stood at the center of the table. We must have received a new order this morning. I motioned at an older woman at the end of the table with my free hand. If new inventory came in and I was at school, she showed me what to do. She seemed to be the natural leader of the table. She often quieted us if we got too playful or garnered looks from the other workers. She moved slowly, but somehow managed to accomplish tasks nimbly and efficiently. Tranquilo, she said during the first weekend I moved, I worked. She put her hand over my scissor and gave them a shake. I was working too fast, giving myself another blister. I wanted the long day to be over, but she understood something I didn't. Moving faster didn't make the day go faster. If we finished this project, there would be another. There was always another project. Tranquilo, she said one final time. Our group worked on orders as a collective. Some orders took a couple of days while others took weeks or months to complete. We didn't know how many more days, how many more bundles of fabric were left, or if there was a deadline. There was a large bin near the table, and as long as the bin was filled, we had work to do. 
It's our job to keep our heads down, do the work, and not ask questions. The rules at the factory weren't so different from the rules at home. My thread trimmer was exactly where I left it. I was the latest member to join the table, so I was left with a pair of scissors no one wanted. They were dull except at the very tip. To use them effectively, I had to snip as hard as I could just to get at the right angle. Otherwise, a dull blade would require three to four snips. As soon as I picked them up, the inner ring rubbed an open blister between my thumb and index finger. It was impossible to keep the wound clean. The older woman caught my wave and nodded. The girl next to me shifted to let her in. Like most low-skilled workers here, we were paid by the hour. We stood in the same spot day in and day out. Our projects were varied from cutting loose threads to tying knots and bows to gluing patterns. It was menial, tedious, relentless work. We stood in place, shifting our weight from one foot to, to the other, our foot and ankles swelling, neck and shoulders cramping, back aching. We developed sores, blisters, calluses from the repetitive motions as we trimmed, cut, knotted, and on occasions glued, tied, and folded. We developed lean shoulders, thick calves. The tasks generally took a few seconds to learn, but was endless in execution. The only time we looked up or moved was to collect more work. Everyone watched the clock. How quickly we worked was the only bit of control we had. If we could enjoy a song on the radio, it was time we gained back. For three to five minutes, our mind could be elsewhere. We saw it as a form of freedom. Like any other job, there was a hierarchy at the factory. There was management, my parents, Mr. Wong, and an accountant who did everything from procuring deals to mocking up prototypes as samples to paying the workers. There were fabric cutters who cut shapes out of, the, out of yards of raw fabric, the sewers at the sewing machine who put the raw pieces together, the women at our table who trimmed, the runners who moved inventory in and around the factory, the steamers and packers who readied the final product, and the drivers who picked up supplies and dropped off orders. The Chinese workers who spoke the same language as the management had access to more information and competitive pay and sometimes the freedom to come and go. One of the unspoken policies was that the more skilled the worker, the fewer limits there were. For example, the quick finger sewers were paid per item instead of per hour. Most pieces paid half a cent and five cent each, and the amount of money each sewer made depended on their speed and the amount of time they wanted to put in. They all competed on orders that were quickest to finish and paid the most. And sometimes that meant foregoing lunch and bathroom breaks and working overtime and on Sundays. When lucrative pro projects came in, they worked nonstop, but they also had the freedom to take days off when things were slower. Rumor had it, some of the skilled sewers worked at other sweatshops like independent contractors. There were at least three empty vacant seats today. Up close, the older woman was shorter her body rounder. Her hair was pulled back in a tight gelled ponytail like the rest of the women. She had a shiny coat of lip gloss on but wore no other makeup. In her hand, she bought the shirt she was working on. I nodded as she spoke Spanish. Whenever I thought I knew what she was saying, the meaning disappeared. Fortunately, our task 
were never complicated and I could follow her just by watching her hands. It was no different from when I first started elementary school and spent the first few years deciphering what I needed from body language, facial expressions, gestures, and pauses. She turned the Henley shirt until it was facing us and began to cut the loose string from the sleeves. Then with expert maneuvering, she used the tip of her clippers to tease the strands of loose thread around, out from under and around the three buttons along the collar. She made two snips and excess thread fell onto the table. Immediately, the fan picked up the thread and it skated off. I could see that the sewers had used one continuous thread to sew all three buttons for speed, and it was our job to clean up after them. I nodded again, said gracias, and grabbed a stack of shirts to work on. Each snip dug into the old broken blister on my hand. I clenched my teeth and focused on teasing the maroon thread around the black buttons. The tip of my clippers felt clumsy compared with the demonstration I'd just seen. My hand throbbed and felt hot to the touch, but methodically I clipped the loose threads from each sleeve and then around each button one at a time. After a dozen shirts, I settled in. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. God, um, that image of this narrator standing in the factory and those fans blowing and the little pieces sort of that like very quiet kind of physical maelstrom of the factory and the little bits of cloth like catching on her ankles. It's something it will be with me for a very long time. Um, and it, and in some way I feel imaginatively like I, like I'd been in that space for a few days, um, as I was rereading the book. And, um, it's amazing to me because so much happens in this book, but your sense of place is so sharp and so vivid and never feels hurried. It's, it's, it's quite an achievement, Anna, you know, I am, I have spent a lot of time at the other end of the experience that I had reading your book where, um, you know, I know you, I've like Mm -hmm. talked to you Mm -hmm. lots and talked to you about this book, but I didn't know very much about your history before I read this book. And then as I was reading the book, I kept wanting to stop and call you. And I was like, I can't do that because I've gotten that call too many times for someone's like, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you and I love you. Um, but I just want you to know that I had that urge a lot reading this book. But one, because of um, because of the book, because as a book object, as a piece of writing, um, as a, a, a world constructed, um, but also because you are like the sweetest, most cheerful, like composed person ever. And, and it just feels all like fake. it's all fake. We, don't get, <laughs> we just don't, we don't get the hardest parts. You know what I mean? Even when we know someone well, like there is a way and correct me if I'm wrong, but I am able to articulate vulnerabilities from my life in writing that I could never say aloud to anyone. And in some cases still haven't, you know, there are like some things in writing that I have only ever said there and that's where they have stayed. And so I just like wanted to start out with a moment of reverence for 
the breadth and intensity and um, range of your story. Like you have had a life. Um, Thank you so much. That means a lot coming from you because I know you know what the process is like. Um, yeah, I when I I mean I worked on this book for ten years and um, no one read it. I wouldn't let anyone read it. Wow. Um, yeah, I think Duval was maybe the third human to read it wow. because I just I didn't trust anyone and. Um, you know, part of that is that when I was going through the process of what happened in this book, I didn't really have a lot of people and I, and the people that I trusted weren't, um, you know, weren't able to really didn't have the capacity to help me. And, um, and, um, you know, when I was writing this book, I knew it was coming from this very deep place. Um, in me and it's, it's the place of origin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had to write it very siloed. Mm -hmm. I like, I was very protective of it. Um, and I wanted to do, you know, I wanted the book to get as far as I could before, um, you know, introducing it to another human being. I wanted it shaped as much as I could shape it. And I wanted to take it as far as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think I did, I mean, Duval, um, you know, we went through eight months of edits. Um, then I went through probably the same amount of edits with mega. Mm-hmm. So lots of editing. Um, but I think, you know, I, I could handle it by the time that I, you know, it was, it was, t- it was, um, okay, because I had put the book out there at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes, on one hand, that's really surprising to me, because I know how long 10 years alone with a book can be. And on the other hand, it makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the privacy of memoir is so Mm -hmm. fundamental to its creation for me. And I think, and, and maybe you've already had this experience, but I think the impression that readers or the casual non-writer have of memoirists is that we're like oversharers, right? Or um, we're really comfortable sharing vulnerable things, or we're just happy to let it all fly and be seen when my experience and what I've observed is mostly the exact opposite of that, is that we are very interested in controlling how other people Mm -hmm. see us. We tend to be very secretive people. Mm -hmm. um, And often we write memoir because there is nowhere else to put it, right? Like there is nowhere else that we feel safe or empowered enough to control the narrative. And so we need 300 pages to do so, right? And so particularly in your story, which is so much about being kind of, um, you know, it's about childhood or most of it takes place during childhood, the scope of the book, which is a very disempowered time for everyone. But, you know, in, in the case of this narrator, it is a child who is at once sort of saddled with a responsibility and commitment that is far beyond what many children expect and what any child should be expected. Um, but is also, 
you know, neglected and let down by the adults who are steering her life. And so it is this incredibly vulnerable story. So I can imagine your reluctance to sort of hand that story over to anyone else or be like, what do you think I should do? You know, that it just had to stay yours for a really long time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to be very surprised, um, you know, and that's, that's one of the, the, the reasons I, I felt like it was necessary to have the book out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's a huge cost of immigration assimilation. I think you see it, right? You see it in the way that I present myself, you know, from the way I speak um, mm-hmm. to maybe my, you know, happy exterior. Um, and, um, you know, that's all been built up for one reason or another. I, 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 I didn't really feel that um, I could tell my story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes, you know, also, and this is true, you know, like we talk a lot about privilege now, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but a huge part of what we're actually talking about is that sort of glacial view of the inequity of how much work is being done invisibly behind the scenes, just so that children can act as if they are on an equal playing field with other kids, you know, and I'm yeah. just thinking of like, the really, really nuanced work that you've done in this book to sort of show the incredible labor of the narrator to sort of catch up both in the, you know, Queen school and in the Chinese school in terms of language, in terms of money, in terms of her clothes, and in terms of the amount of time and support that just like every level of resourcing is so challenged for her. And then you have that incredibly moving scene where she goes and sees her cousins, I think, right, who have who are in, you know, just have so much less even to work Mm -hmm. with, you know, and, uh, you know, and that you didn't make that moment one in which the narrator felt shame or, you know, it was just, it was almost a moment of confusion, right? Where it's like, she could see, it's just not meant for a kid to try to have to parse out that kind of thing, you know, and yet, of course, there are many, 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 many children who are dealing with that. And, and worse and having to sort of navigate both sort of cognitively and practically in their lives, um, that kind of disparity with no explanation from any adults or teachers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and, and, you know, that context was really important for me for this book, right? As I really didn't want my personal trauma to be overshadowing the rest of the book. And I, I, you know, I, the the reason that intro is so long is because I I wanted to show the father and son I wanted to show the woman that that was helping me and um, they were you know they were they're people just like everyone else and yet they don't get the recognition that they deserve and and um, and you know there's a lot of scenes like that in the book because I really wanted it to be an opportunity to shine a light on some of that stuff because as cruel as my situation was with my mother, um, as much as that like cruelty is based on, you know, a choice that she made. Um, I think, you know, there's so much about immigration that isn't a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I want to present some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even back, you know, even just my personal fact, uh, my personal family, um, you know, my cousin's, um, my 
family. My mother is the youngest of five. She's the only one that came here legally. Mm-hmm. Everyone else was illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of cousins. Um, uh, so we were in some ways um, the only middle class um, mm-hmm. family within mm-hmm. our family. So I was also very cognizant of that. Um, and I think, you know, my mother's fear ruled much of her decision making. Mm-hmm. And that made her be really, really controlling and strict with mm-hmm. me on a level that really just did not make sense. But mm-hmm. I don't think she could help herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that, you know, you really managed to make that clear. And I think that that is, that is the hardest part. And, and one of the most important jobs of the memoirists. And I think sometimes we err on the side of like, you have to be hardest on yourself and find a way to be uh, generous to your worst, to not villainize anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Even though sometimes people are pretty villainous in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the harder task is to look at things with a lucid, clear gaze that mm-hmm. can see the larger context and is also fully cognizant of the harm that is done. And I think you did this in this book. So as I was reading it, just, you know, as a reader, um, I was so furious at everyone in this book, (laughs) except the narrator. I was so, so angry at the mother character. And I also felt such tremendous sympathy. And there are these moments. So there's this moment where you go back after you've gone to college and have been denied again, so many resources and it's just been hellacious. And then, so, you know, our narrator goes back to see her mother and her mother starts giving her the tour of the remodeled house. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't a moment. It's like the narrator doesn't, again, like with the cousins, doesn't force herself into a place of like, oh, my poor mother, but very clearly and so lucidly can see how the mother is sort of split in that moment where she's not sure what role she's playing, right? Like she doesn't actually know how to be a mother to this person, right? Yeah, like doesn't. she doesn't. She's had to work so hard to become the person that she's trying to show her, right? Mm -hmm. Like she's, and there's something deeply humane and sympathetic in that, even though it's also like pitiful and disgusting at the same time, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that scene, um, I, I just love that part just also because it comes full circle, um, the, the only party in the scene is this housewarming party right mm-hmm. after I lo- arrive and it's mm-hmm. to celebrate, um, you know, me joining the family and my mother goes around sort of showing off the house and the front lawn and the back lawn and, you know, all the windows and the bedrooms. And, you know, um, my family was the first to buy a house. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and it's so funny because, um, you know, she treats me that way once the house is remodeled. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't know how to respond to that either. And in mm-hmm. that moment, you know, I have my own feelings about seeing she, you know, she changed my room into a walk-in closet and a huge mm-hmm. bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had very mixed feelings about that, but she wanted me to l- like the design. Mm-hmm. And I, on one hand, I, you know, 
have no interest in destroying my mother the way she destroyed me. But on the other hand, you know, it's very hard not to acknowledge my own feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm so glad to hear that you picked up on that. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it really felt also that you were very consciously, and this is like the writer perspective that was mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it's like, there's always a little part of us as writers that's like sitting to the side with a steno pad, you know, taking notes and not having any feelings. And yeah. that part of me um, was just absolutely in awe of the way that you managed to give us this really clear eyed, intimate view of an experience, right? An experience that millions and millions of people have, but you never disrupt sort of the dream of the story. We never really leave that intimate narrator story. And, you know, that is what makes this book sort of my fantasy of a book, which is a book that is, you know, delivering me like nutrient rich paragraphs of meaning, but it tastes like candy, you know, like I couldn't stop reading it. And, and, you know, as Rick pointed out, it's sometimes very painful to read because these are really hard experiences. Um, And I think particularly as someone who knows and cares about you, it was was pretty painful. Um, But it's a book that, you know, it would be impossible for me not to read in 48 hours. Um, And I I just want to go back for one more second to that scene. Um, There's a detail in that very first party. And this is part of how I think you do it, how you're teaching us something and showing us and signaling to the reader something larger, but always keeping it in this cohesive scene, in that party scene, when the narrator first um, comes to her mother's house, you describe the part, it's, it's, the party is set up as if it's for a holiday, because the family doesn't have parties, like they aren't used to throwing parties. And so they decorate as if it's a holiday, and they have the candy and the food out that they have on holidays, because they don't know how to throw a party, because they're just haven't, been resources to do that. Right. So it's really, there is this kind of really vulnerable anxiety running through even some of the cruelest moments, you know, that part of it is that this woman has had to fight for her, for this life, you know, Mm -hmm. and it feels like it's in jeopardy at every moment. Right. And when the narrator is just being a kid, she's in the mother's eyes, threatening this whole life that she's created. Right. Um, I want to ask you a question that I love asking writer friends of mine. And sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable, but, um, but, but I, but I'm going to ask you anyway. And that is, um, can you think of a part of this book, a passage, a chapter, a scene, even a single image that you feel incredibly proud of, which is to say something you finished writing. Maybe it was the 10th draft. Maybe it was the first. And you thought like, yes that was what I meant to do. I nailed it. I think, I think it has to be the ending. Mm. Oh, so um, yeah. So beautiful. Oh. <laughs> the ending I think is like way more sentimental than the rest of the book. And that was intentional. Um, And I can't, you know, it's hard for me to separate the fact that I never thought I would be able to physically live through such an ending. Mm -hmm. And also having, you know, having it happen and being like, I know how this book is going to end now. 
And, you know, the, the beginning changed so many times, but the ending never changed. I'm tearing Um, up just thinking like, yeah, yeah. I really, you know, I knew that this book, it, it, one of the reasons it took 10 years is because that's how long it took to find the light in this book. Mm. Um, and the light in, you know, every sense of that word, right. Um, mm. to mm. write through the pain and blame and, you know, anger, um, to build out my, to consistently try to build out my mother's character over and over Mm -hmm. because she just seemed so cruel. Um, And, you know, um, Cinderella, uh, like a stepmom. And I really didn't want that to be, you know, the book that I spent 10 years of my life writing. Um, Mm -hmm. It had to be more than that. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it was really important for me that this book had some sort of balance and, you know, it's, it's, it was really hard to write this book. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it, I don't think I could have been kinder. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, um, there's a lot of things that didn't make it into the book and I mm-hmm. have, um, I, um, I believe that we should, um, well, I also believe, you know, there's a lot of transgenerational trauma in this book. And one thing I didn't want to do was traumatize the reader with my trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I, I tried really hard not actually to let a lot of the pain through. And that was intentional um, Mm -hmm. because I didn't think that the, the reader needed it. Um, I think we all know what pain is like. I think we all know what abandonment is like. And I think we all um, can can feel what this narrator is feeling. And so I wanted a bigger story around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I really hope that, you know, the abuse doesn't shadow the, the other parts of this book. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It, it absolutely doesn't. And, you know... I mean, in some ways, I think it's more effective. I, I forget who it was who said to write hot scenes cold, but you do yes. that marvelously. Do you remember who it was? It, it's actually a, a quote that uh, the, someone. Uh, um, I want to say it was like Dickinson, but I don't think that's right. Somebody look it up and, and tell us. But, yes, but uh, the way that you don't, you, you're, you do exactly what I am constantly telling my students to do, where I'm like, the higher the drama in a scene, the clearer the harm that's being done, the less you have to describe it, the more or the less you have to name it, right? You yes, can just describe absolutely. what happens. Absolutely. I think it's way more compelling that way. I talk to my students about sentimentality all the time. Like we want sentiment, but we don't want your sentimentality. Along those lines, I just want to, because you described your ending as sentimental and I just want to correct you because it is not sentimental. It's just absolutely heartrending and true. Like it's not saccharine. It's not truly. It really feels absolutely uh, just absolutely true. And also, of course, like after the, a lot of the book, I was really thirsty for that moment. Yeah. yeah um, I needed it. 
I need, but I also like, it makes perfect sense to me that you had to sort of live your way into that lightness. Right. Mm -hmm. And that you had to keep writing and, you know, some ways for me, writing memoir feels like a process of exfoliation, right. Where you're just like scratching away at the story, scratching away until you get down to the bone of it. Right. And, and there's always light there, you know, Mm -hmm. there really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely died at the end. It was, um, it was, it was just perfect. And I won't say anything else because I don't want, I don't want anyone else. And, and I'll also just say that, you know, when you, when you describe your experience of the beginning of the book, it has always been my experience. I've written five books now for one of them. No one will ever see. Um, but it has always been that way. The beginning is the most rewritten part of, cause you know, the least when you write yeah. it, you don't know anything about the rest of the book. And then when you get, it's like at every stage, you could rewrite the beginning because you have more and more and more information. So that's always been my experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. I cannot believe how fast the time is going. I have, oh. you would not believe how many questions I have for you. Oh, wow. um, yeah, that, that was very fast. But I want to, I might ask you one more and then I'll go um, to the questions. So if you have a question for Anna, please put it in the Q and a right now. We may be able to get to it. Um, you know, I guess I just want to ask you, a, you know, a question that I find annoying when it's asked in certain ways. And so I'm going to use your epigraph as a way to get into it. And let me just say, when I read, you know, the epigraph is by Lucy Greeley, who, and you know, this is a very Sarah Lawrence epigraph. I feel like we all were sort of taught by Lucy Greeley's work because she was a Sarah Lawrence girl. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. She actually, that book is where I learned, um, that you don't, you have, you can be kind to your readers. And yeah. I have never oh, thought about that. Autobiography of the face. I, she blew my mind. She's a mate. She's a genius. She was, a, and she was someone who wrote exquisitely insightfully about suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, she, yeah. she made it beautiful without lying mm-hmm. about what it was, you know? And yeah, her and Ann Patchett met at Sarah Lawrence, I believe. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She didn't graduate, but she started. (laughs) Um, But so the epigraph, I'm just going to read it for people who don't have the book. I used to think truth was eternal that once I knew, once I saw it would be with me forever, a constant by which everything else could be measured. I know now that this isn't so that most truths are inherently unretainable, that we have to work hard all our lives to remember the most basic things. I mean, it could be an epigraph for like every human life, right? Um, It has been my experience in writing about my most intense and harrowing and changing experiences that sometimes, and you might, be in this place now, like right after I've written it, if someone's like, how did that affect you? How did it change you? I'm like, I don't know, maybe not at all. I have no idea. It was like a fever dream. (laughs) What happens is over time, over the months and years that follow, I notice how I respond differently to things. And I'm going to use an example that just happened to me yesterday where, um, and I'll try to make this really quick. So I I just published this book about my own adolescence, which was about like, all the hard things that happen in adolescence. Um, and I, you know, had was talking about it for months and months on book tour and not feeling that emotionally connected. And I was like, I, you know, I, 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 I just need to like, think about something else. And, um, I tried to start watching that show euphoria, uh, mm-hmm. on HBO, which everyone loves. And I tried, and I realized that I can't watch shows with adolescent girls 
like with the things that happen to adolescent girls, the dramatized, like mm-hmm. ordinary, yeah. horrible yeah. things. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I actually, I can never watch the show. Like I absolutely cannot. And that is a 180 from, I used to obsessively watch things like that. Mm-hmm. I think because I hadn't sat inside my own story enough. That's a really long way of saying, um, how has writing this book changed you? I think it's, um, I mean, I think it's still happening, but I just, it's, I mean, this book is giving me closure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, one of the things I struggled most with recently was just um, waiting for this book to come out to see if it was going to do okay. And that made me confront, you know, how much validation I still needed. And that was very upsetting to me. But um, after Publishers Weekly's Star Review came out, I just, you know, my it felt like my body just was exhaling for days. It just it was just relief coming out of my body for like three or four days before Mm -hmm. I I couldn't feel anything else. I just felt relief. Mm -hmm. And so it's just been really transformative. And I think it's going to continue to be transformative. Um, Mm -hmm. And this book is really hard for me to still talk about um, partly because so few people know the the whole story. I I actually don't think anybody knows the whole story. Um, And, you know, part of that is because um, I didn't really grow up in a culture that allowed me that um, space. But, um, and then at some point, you know, I also didn't want to look at it. So it's a combination of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But I I do hope that it gets easier to talk about this book. Um, I think it hurts me still. when people just ask me about the abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in an interview yesterday and, and um, I want to say who it was, but um, they asked me if I love my mother. And that was just so upsetting to me. My initial response was like, what kind of monster do you think I am that I wouldn't <laughs> love my mother? Like, like how wrongly can you interpret this book yeah. to think that there is no love I know. Um, for I know. Or from my mother? It's just, and I so know. that's still like really heartbreaking to me. Um, I think that sort of question takes an emotional toll on me still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really hope I get better with questions like that. So, I mean, it's still happening. It is yeah. transforming me. It continues to transform me. I just, I'm just so thrilled that um, I can move on. You know, this book, is, <laughs> <laughs> this book has always felt like a vocation to me. It just, mm-hmm. you know, I went into grad school wanting to write this book. I was um, going to ask if you were working on it there. Yeah, I know it's, I mean, it, it's so common that that it's almost a cliche among writers where it's like sometimes you can't get to anything else until mm-hmm. you get through your own story. Yeah. Like yes. the bouncer, yeah. you know, like and you now really. I'm like, freedom. like I'm I know, just, like, I know. Wild in the field. I know. <laughs> like, I know. Can I write fiction now? Because I know. 
I know. Um, okay, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to our questions. We've taken a woefully long time to get there. Um, um, I think where was the one? Here we go. I like this one in the chat right now. Um, since this was a 10 year writing process, how does the book you published compare to what you originally envisioned when you started writing it? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I. I don't think it's possible to compare it. Um, and I think, um, you know, I am just, I feel so, so fortunate. I think I was really lucky. I landed um, an agent right away. Um, Mega was interested in the book right away. Um, like we sent the book out and within two weeks, she responded. Um, so I've been very, very fortunate. Um, um, wait, what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) How is it different? It's impossible to compare. I think, um, it's transformed so many times. And every time we went through the editorial process, I had to force myself to enact those changes. Um, part of that is just because I, you know, I chiseled away at this book for 10 years and it just was so hard for me to like go in and break it apart because it had been mm-hmm. so tightly braided. Mm-hmm. And I knew as we were editing it, that I was losing these parts of it. And so that was really, really tough. Um, and then I was also afraid um, that this book would no longer be mine. And um, and I think those are normal reactions, but I'm really happy with how the book turned out. Really, it really, it really is. You know, I I described your cover similarly um, before we went live, but it really has that quality. It feels whole. You know, yeah. it feels. There was no part of this book where I was like, something's missing here. What about that? Like it was, it felt like it was made out of whole cloth, you know, like it did not feel like anything was missing. And I know from experience that that means that the writer has worked the out of a book when it feels like that, because it really, every piece of it has been considered and reconsidered and, and she knows exactly what job it's doing, you know? So it really feels like a completed puzzle. So you did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's, here's another question. This is um, from mega our editor. Um, what's a craft lesson or question that you're thinking about that's exciting for you right now? Um, and I guess I also want to know, you know, something, when I finish a project, uh, and particularly if it's like a specific form, like this is a pretty traditional memoir, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. um, what are you looking toward? What do you want to be challenged by next? What do you want to master? Like as a writer, what are you hungry for now that you have been released from this 10 year relationship? Like, yeah. you want to ask out? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that that I, that's great. Um, that's a great question. Um, freedom is amazing, and it's also <laughs> scary. <laughs> um, I think I'm really interested. I was really thinking about who my forefathers are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I don't. 
I consider myself, you know, Chinese American. I don't think um, that my history really lies in China. Um, I don't see my own representation in our history. And I think there's a lot of room for that narrative. So actually, I would love to write something that is more um, research-based, so historic, like historical fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very character-driven. So I would say that's sort of the craft mindset I'm in, just like complicated characters and how do we create these complicated characters. Um, And, you know, some of that's cultural. I I do think that um, China has a very different way of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm aware of that. And so, um, so it's kind of, you know, making something my own with my heritage, but also with the history of this country, you Mm know, um, New York in the, you know, 1880s. Um, what that was like for Chinese immigrants. Um, I'm excited. Yeah, it's really Everybody is so excited. I am so ready for that book. Yeah. Yeah, and I hope I, um, I hope it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, I hope it'll oh, be fun. That is really great. Um, okay, maybe one last one. So this is interesting. Um, Susan wants to know if you have addressed or connected your experience with others who do repetitive jobs every day. And, and I'll qualify this by saying, as you were reading, when I first started teaching, I remember I used to give this handout to my students that was like, here are the different types of memoir there are. There are like mother memoirs. There are marriage memoirs. There are work memoirs. And this memoir is all of them. I mean, and of course, like all of, you know, most memoirs are all of the best memoirs are all of them. But in many ways, this is a memoir about work, even the end when you're at the startup, you know, it's this really interesting sort of counterpoint to a work life. It is the narrative of someone coming of age while having a work life. And I guess, um, I don't know, I'm also interested if I'm totally changing Susan's question and, and <laughs> please answer her question if you have connected with other people around sort of their labor experiences but I'm interested in sort of um, how you wanted to represent that and also how how a relationship to work manifests in your life as part of that longer timeline yeah um I have to give uh, mega a lot of credit for the work theme she really mm-hmm. teased it out and I was uncomfortable with a lot of it. And, um, but I think it turned out that was one of the most surprising parts of the book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think it's really important because so much of this book is about class, especially mm-hmm. working class job, working class yeah. labor, um, and about supporting yourself in survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think um, that's also really um, not represented enough in literature. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, our Mm -hmm. history is writers that are white male. And even if they are women, like Mm -hmm. they didn't really work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I think there's, you know, class issues across the board. That's really problematic. Um, 
as well as just um, feeling trapped in within the class. Um, and I felt a lot of that, you know, I've been working since, you know, I mean, <laughs> for a long time. And, um, and I've, I probably have come to that realization a little bit earlier than most people, let's say they come out of college and go to work. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've been working since I was 14, 15. So mm-hmm. I've had a lot of jobs and most of them were, um, you know, manual labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a specific perspective of that, right? Just um, both of shame and um, like, mm-hmm. is this what my life amounts to, you know, um, am I just an office manager when this person just treated me like I'm because, uh, we ran out of coffee, you know, and just having to deal with that on a daily level. And I wanted some of that in the book too, because this book is so much about class and about those workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to, you know, use sort of that, that when the when the uh startup collapsed and sort of my emotional you know my my mind sort of collapsed with it because it was just such a scary time for me and also trauma right around work and safety and um and just, you know, I've, I left home when I was 17 and um one one of the ways I've always comforted myself is through work mm-hmm. and having some sort of saving and, and being able to support myself. So when work, you know, is chaotic or work, you know, mm-hmm. falls through, I just lose my sense of self. And um, which is, you know, so again, such a contradiction, right? Because it's work that I don't like and feel like I am more than, and yet without it, I feel like I'm nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so relatable. I've also worked since not, you know, in the, in the same way that you described here, but, um, you know, I got my first restaurant job when I was 14 and, mm-hmm. And there really is a way that sort of a physical production of something from my body's labor is so measurable, (laughs) you know, it's so much more measurable than making art sometimes, you know, Um, but it is something that I've always felt very um, sort of anchored by. And that one of the challenges of, of me now, like approaching middle age is figuring out how to let go of that a little bit so that I can Mm -hmm. make space for, for other things that might. Yeah. um, Yeah. And I think what's in this book about work um, that maybe isn't there and that I'm just struggling with now is just, you know, I now identify as a writer and a teacher and, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and so my value has changed. And so I'm sort of adjusting to that. And, um, and um, part of that is giving yourself permission, right, to, um, it, it's definitely more of an intellectual position than I've had previously. Um, so that's really interesting. And yeah. yeah, yeah, so I'm super aware of it. And I, you know, I think about it a lot. I just want to say also that, um, you know, it is, this is so obviously your calling, 
you know, that like, when I look at the timeline from reading this book and read about sort of what it took for you to be like, no, I'm staying in college. Like I'm going to do what, and just like calling upon your inner resources, which are profound, um, to really forge a path to exactly where you are right now. Like that isn't possible for everyone. And it, I surely wasn't easy for you. Um, And it really seems to me to be a testament to the fact that this is exactly what you're meant to be doing. And um, I'm so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful for your work. Um, Such an honor. It's such an honor. I love you. I love your work. I'm so happy that you like the book. (laughs) It's so good. It is so good. Um, So I think we've got a little bit over our time, but, um, but, but I think that's okay. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. Keep going. I mean, well, I know it is time and it's, and I didn't even acknowledge that both of you, well, um, uh, Melissa's in the Midwest, but I think it's farm country and they go to bed earlier there. Uh, and, and it is after 10 where Anna is. And um, yeah. I, you're, you're both doing the thing of leaving people, you know, leaving people, giving people so much, but leaving them wanting more. But that's the better, mm-hmm. best way to leave it because um, it's been such a great conversation. The comments in the, in the chat, including Tamako from Tokyo, just now saying oh you know i know you want to do these things in person but i get to be in tokyo and and see this and i think there's been a great sense of the two of you having um your history your rapport your what you really bring to the writing of this um that the the, the labor that goes buy the book order the book from elliot bay best yes Yes, buy the book from elliot bay and and girlhood and yes but come come (laughs) visit us uh when you're if you're in seattle although i know many of you here tonight aren't this is this has been great i will say um i don't know if anyone had better luck looking up the um writing of a hot scene cold but um i made my stab at it and besides most of it led to a lot of sex scene cosmopolitan <laughs> magazine uh, rabbit holes said well, yeah, i'm glad i was listening to you it kept it on a higher plane but I maybe found, found who the real quote was from um but this has been great in so many ways both of you um and the generosity of spirit and and good um energy and um will and um Thanks again to Mega who uh, put in good questions along and, and gave Anna a good question about what, what might be next. Um, so uh, that's to look forward to, for, you know, but in good time. Meanwhile, to read this and, um, and take it to heart, um, this brave and lovely book. And, and both of you there, yeah. for, again, for thanking yeah. for this. Thank you, everyone. Um, good morning or good afternoon or whatever it is in Tokyo uh, and good night and good evening to everyone um, on this side of the planet. Um, Thank you again. again, Thanks everybody. So much everyone for coming. This means so much to me. I'm reading the comments and uh, thank you so much, Melissa. You are my mentor, my hero. There you go. I love you. You did such a good job. Thank you. And Rick, thank you for having us. Gladly. I will also you're you're getting all these new readers. I mean, I know you talked about your in-person launch and knowing everyone there, but now what's really happening is the book besides the friends that keep coming to these um, is is Mm -hmm. there are people you don't know. And that's going to be, yeah, that's going to be going to to all the, all the readers, a a journey that um, Melissa's known with her books too. So um, Mm -hmm. thank you again, both all. Thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you in Elliott Bay. Yes. I love that place so much. Thank you. Melissa, we'll talk. We will. We will.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Speakers Forum on KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This conversation was presented by Elliott Bay Book Company on August 5th. It featured authors Anna Chu in a conversation with Melissa Phoebos discussing Chu's new memoir, Made in China, a memoir of love and labor. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon.